Now, analysis and reaction. Here is NL News Director Shane Woodford on 610 AM. Good morning and welcome to the Woodford Show. Happy Monday to all of you. Lots to talk about today, including today's meeting of that special legislative committee chaired by Speaker Daryl Plekis. Those are always a little fireworks to expect there. Uh, he has promised to unveil some kind of evidence. Uh, Richard Zussman will be on the show later to discuss that. Uh, we'll also hear from the Attorney General about money laundering uh, controversy that continues to swirl in this province. But first, Russia's attempt to influence the last U.S. presidential election is absolutely beyond dispute. And with the federal election looming here, should we be concerned that the Russian bear will turn its attention to Canada? Well, let's find out. Proud to welcome to the show Marcus Kolga, leading Canadian expert on Russia and Central and Eastern European issues, the author of Stemming the Virus, a report from McDonald Laurier Institute unveiled last week to understand and respond to the threat of Russian disinformation. Good morning and welcome to the show, Marcus. Good morning. Thanks for having me on, Shane. Yeah, thanks for coming on. This is an extremely interesting and, uh, in a lot of ways, sinister issue. Uh, we all, of course, are, are very aware of what's playing out with our, our southern neighbor and the continuing efforts by the Mueller investigation and collusion in Russia and uh, disinformation campaigns and the things that played out on Twitter and Facebook and, and etc. So, um, first and foremost, before we dive into some of the nuances of your report, I'm just kind of curious, as we tiptoe towards the federal election here, uh, how much is your radar sort of pinging as far as a concern level about some kind of similar antics playing out uh, here north of the border? Well, it, look, it's, it's not a question of if anymore. It's a question of how bad is it going to be? Um, you know, we were, the Canadian uh, uh, security, communication security establishment, uh, the Prime Minister, Minister Stajan have all sort of admitted to the fact that um, our 2015 federal elections were already targeted. Um, by foreign interference, um, and so we and it's been happening before that, and it's only steadily gotten worse since 2015. So I don't think there's any sort of doubt that uh, we're going to be targeted in, in 2019. It's just a question of how bad it's going to be. What do you see as far as an evolution? Obviously, the, the Russians have been uh, kind of fine-tuning this system that they have. Uh, I'm sure they will have adapted or adjusted to uh, whatever they did in the United States in order to try and find something more potent or uh, a different avenue of attack, perhaps. Uh, any ideas so far as, as far as an evolution of what we might see as, as this machine kind of tunes up? Sure. It's, well, it's, it's, it's a multi-pronged, very sophisticated um, attack. It's, I mean, it's total information warfare. So it's not just limited to platforms like Twitter and Facebook. Those are very, very important, but it's not the only place that this sort of stuff is happening. Um, the, the Russian government, what they're using is, is proxies uh, in Canada and other countries um, to spread disinformation. It's, it's done via social media, those sort of, those sort of channels, but it's also done through uh, various different uh, conspiracy theory websites, um, and sometimes the, the disinformation, the complete lies and fabrications that are presented on those websites uh, percolate up uh, through social media and other means to mainstream media. That's one way. And cyber is another way. Um, in the U.S., one of the uh, biggest um, ways that the Kremlin manipulated the uh, elections was through uh, hacking and through hacked information. Uh, they hacked into the Democratic Party's uh, servers. They obtained um, election analytics, which allowed them then to use social media and other means to target voters in specific uh, voting districts 
to ensure that they either didn't go and vote or went and voted in, in larger numbers. Um, you know, this sort of thing is a, it is a major threat that we're not really looking at here in Canada. And, um, you know, there, the security protocols that are in place with political parties on Election Canada are, are right now not that uh, robust. So that, that could be an issue here. Yeah, that was actually going to be my next question, whether, I mean, we're all watching this play out. Should Is anything being done? Are we susceptible? Are we vulnerable? Not just the government institutions, and uh, but those of the various political parties. And, and, and I think, to some extent, uh, the major media outlets in this country as well. Are, are, are we prepared to deal with this or protect ourselves or inoculate ourselves from it? Yeah, I, I don't think we're looking at this seriously enough, to be quite honest. I mean, if you look at our election system, most our ballots are all, at the federal level, they're paper-based. We're safe there. Um, you know, can the counting systems be manipulated? I suppose. But, um, you know, having been involved in elections for the majority of my life, I know that those paper ballots, they, they do get counted by hand at the polling station. So there's no real concern there. But the real concern is with those party lists. Um, you know, I think if you speak to anyone who's volunteered on the election campaign of any of the major parties, but even at the riding level, um, you know, you can have a volunteer walk in the door a week before election day um, and have them volunteer to help on election day or go and canvas. That person will be given access to significant lists. Um, I volunteered on election day with one of our major federal parties uh, in the 2015 election, and I was given access. I was completely shocked. Uh, via an app to the vote, entire voter list within this, the riding that I was, uh, that I was volunteering in. Um, that means that anyone could really walk through the door. I wasn't really vetted. I mean, I said that I lived in the riding, um, and, and that was all they needed. So, you know, we need to make sure, you know, whether it's elections, Canada, or the parties themselves, need to make sure those protocols are in place. And, uh, and as well through email, um, Let's not forget, again, that Democratic hack, it came through John Podesta's email. So John Podesta was, of course, the, the campaign chair for Hillary Clinton. He received a spoof email uh, asking him to reset his Gmail account. He fell for it, uh, entered his password, and these, uh, essentially these Russian hackers had, then had access to all sorts of other information within that account. Um, you know, there have, to, there have to be protocols in place for the writing association level, for provincial level and federal level party uh, party operatives, um, with you know simple things like two factor uh, uh, passwords, which which requires you to add an additional uh, code in when you're when you're logging into account, and these are very simple things, and they're basically they're measures that we can take um, at the human level um, that that don't require a lot of resources. They just require somebody to set out these protocols and ensure that people are following them. Yeah. And the flip side of that coin, too, is uh, protecting our democratic institutions is one thing. Protecting our major media companies is, is another. Um, but the other thing, too, is 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 the people themselves. And I think to some degree Russia has uh, achieved its goal of, of defraying trust in sort of the major media institutions. We've seen sort of the chance of fake news south of the border. We had the Prime Minister come visit here in Kamloops not that long ago. Uh, there was a certain group of people that were chanting fake news and all this kind of stuff. But there's a there's a division at the political level among people. And I just, I wonder how we, how we inform and educate people so that they can't be um, manipulated by four agents who create a Facebook group and, and prey off a political divide? Well, so two things with that. You're absolutely right. I mean, this, uh, this fake, the cries of fake news, uh, the fact that fake news has infiltrated 
um, our media sort of environment, whether it's through Facebook, Twitter, or other means, or conspiracy theory websites, which are among the worst again, um, this has injected this sort of terrible virus into our the way that we debate important issues in our country. Uh, and to me personally, that's I think the most terrifying aspect of this is that um, you know if we're worried about Russian. Uh, uh, interference in 2019 or Chinese interference, um, you know, we've already started doing this ourselves with, um, you know, extremist far right and extremist far left uh, politics, uh, posting all sorts of, uh, uh, of news and, and such that's completely fabricated and intended to sow, sow major divides or, or expand those divides that, that already exist. Um, so that's, that's the first thing that, you know, we have to keep an eye out for that. The second is that the, one of the solutions, I think, that the federal government, or one way the federal government can address this, and provincial governments as well, let's not forget that they're not immune from this. I think the Ontario election sort of demonstrated a bit of that uh, uh, last year. Um, one thing that the federal government could do is help fund um, awareness campaigns, uh, public service announcements about how to identify fake news how to consume media in a way that's critical, where people will question where it's coming from. Um, I think, you know, there, there are people of a certain generation who have grown up uh, all their lives trusting media, you know, Walter Cronkite, uh, um, you know, these, these sorts of anchors. I mean, there was no reason to dispute the source of your news for decades. It's only in the past 10, 10 years or so, maybe a bit less, where um, this fake news has emerged. And some people just accept it as fact, especially, you know, I, I see it all the time on Facebook, where, where people repost news um, that is clearly fake, but they simply, you know, they simply trust it. So, you know, public service announcements, um, media, a media literacy campaign that really starts, I think, with our youth um, to, for, you know, protect us in the long term, but, uh, but media literacy campaigns that also target middle-aged people and seniors to help them understand when, when they're be, being manipulated, or at least make them think twice about it. That's, I think, the, the most critical thing. I mean, others have talked about potentially censoring uh, social media, censoring other forms of media, and, and that's not something that we can engage in, because I think as soon as we start censoring uh, anyone, then, um, you know, I think the, the other side has won, because that's exactly what... Uh, Vladimir Putin wants mm. to do. It's exactly what the Chinese regime wants us to do. So, yeah. media literacy is the, is the key here. Yeah, I know. Uh, just a sort of a for me, I, I think that if you have if you have a populace that is uh, has got good critical thinking skills and a, and a functioning BS detector, that in its own way is sort of you know the last line of defense of any democracy. And, and right now, I, my concern is I'm seeing that defrayed to a great extent. Uh, Marcus, do you want to hang tight, and we'll do a quick commercial break and pick this conversation up on the other side. Happy to. Excellent. Uh, we're talking to Marcus Kolga, a leading Canadian expert on Russia and Central and Eastern European issues. He's behind a report from the Macdonald Laurier Institute called Stemming the Virus, Understanding and Responding to the Threat of Russian Disinformation. We'll talk more to Marcus on the Woodford Show right here on Radio NL after this. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. The voice of your community. You're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. 
Good morning. Welcome. We're talking to Marcus Kolga, the man behind uh, the McDonald Laurier report called Stemming the Virus, Understanding and Responding to the Threat of Russian Disinformation. Marcus, as you and I were talking about before the break, Russia loves to get in and uh, kind of disrupt existing divides, especially on the political level. I, I note in your report you mentioned, and I'll just uh, quote here directly, the emergence of fringe right or left-wing parties, especially those associated with xenophobic or libertarian causes, should raise red flags in Western nations. You go on to mention uh, several for example, the French National Front, bankrolled by the Kremlin uh, in the United Kingdom, UKIP, and, and so on and so forth. How how do we deal in uh, on that level of determining, um, you know, who Russia is trying to influence? I assume there would be some kind of funding transparency involved, but how do we kind of weed out political parties that may be fronts or being manipulated by a foreign agent? Oh, yeah, well, it's a very good question. I mean, with regards to funding, um, the Canadian government just, um, passed a bill, C-76, which is intended to protect our elections and specifically, you know, targeting third-party and foreign funding of advertising specifically on social media. And this is, I mean, it's a, it's a great piece of legislation um, that will make a lot of these regimes think twice, um, and it will provide some sort of transparency, I think, um, at least uh, for social media and such. The one thing that it doesn't take into account is that um, and it's, it's usually not the regimes that are paying for these, these ads. So when Vladimir Putin wants to uh, put together an ad that sort of discredits uh, um, Stephen Harper or, or Andrew Scheer or, or, or Prime Minister, he or his agents, they're not using the Kremlin credit card to do this. Um, you know, so so the, the legislation is good, but it doesn't take that into account. Um, and so as far as, you know, spending and that sort of thing is concerned, we do have some measures in place, um, but, um, but they're, they're not that robust. And they don't take into account the fact that it's usually proxy groups um, that are going to be paying for this advertising or they're the ones that are going to be amplifying the messages. Um, and so it goes back to, you know, what you and I were talking about earlier, which was this, you know, this awareness by, uh, by the government and, and a need for... Canadians to be aware of what's going on and, and what, what sort of information that's being sent to them. Uh, on the second part about populism and, and, and being aware of what's going on and, and what the Kremlin is trying to do. Um, so back in 2015, the Kremlin wasn't all that pleased with uh, the Harper government's foreign policy. Um, they were very strong on Ukraine um, and spoke out uh, very much against uh, Russia's illegal occupation of Crimea and, of course, their attacks in, uh, in eastern Ukraine. Um, and so they did sort of, if you look back then on Russian, uh, pro-Russian, pro-Kremlin um, social media sites, especially the ones here in Canada, there was a lot of support for, for uh, Justin Trudeau. And then after that, for uh, Stéphane Dion, because Stéphane Dion um, supported a, a policy of re-engagement with the Kremlin. And so there was some support for that. Um, when when Stefan Dion was replaced by Christian Freeland, all of this changed, and um, and the pro Kremlin media in Canada, social media, and also proxy groups were very critical of Christian Freeland, and uh, you know because she's she's really sort of uh, provided a continuation of those Harper era uh, strong policies towards towards Russia. So in this coming election in 2019, what we you know it's unlikely that the Kremlin will have a specific horse in the race with regards to the Liberal Party or the Conservatives. I don't think they, they really, they're not too interested in having either of them in power. 
So what we should be seeing is a further sort of uh, uh, amplification of far-right and far-left policy. Um, I think there's going to be an amplification of anti-immigrant sentiment um, and further xenophobic sort of messaging. Um, you know, I, I think there's you know, this, this fallacy that uh, Justin Trudeau supports some sort of a, a strange world government uh, that will supersede any national Canadian government. I mean, you can see that sort of messaging being amplified. Um, and I think there's, there's a specific party that's sort of emerging that sort of fits the bill. And, and I'm not saying that there's going to be direct financing or support for that party, but, um, you know, this new People's Party, it, it really smells and looks a lot like some of these extremist right-wing parties that we've seen emerge in, uh, in places like France, the National Front, ADF in Germany, um, in Sweden, and, and elsewhere. And that's exactly the sort of messaging that the Kremlin wants to see. Because ultimately, for Vladimir Putin, what he's looking for is a fractured West. Because he cannot compete with us when we are united. So he needs us to be fractured. And it's these sorts of marginal or the extremist marginal right-wing parties that call for the um, dissolution of NATO, for the dissolution of the EU and other alliances. That's, that's what he wants to support because that's where he will ultimately win. So, like I said, there's, I, I doubt that he's, uh, the Kremlin is going to support a specific party, um, but uh, look out for, for extremist, uh, extremist messaging and, and support amplification of those narratives. All right. Uh, Marcus, we only got one minute left, but we've spent a lot of this conversation uh, discussing Russia specifically and, and uh, duly so, but um, are they alone out there? I mean, Canada recently having a brush with China, continuing brush on the diplomatic front. Uh, should we be concerned about other countries like that or, or no? Oh, heavens, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah I, Russia is not alone. Um, you know, the, the Chinese uh, disinformation, disinformation machine is, is equally as active and perhaps even more sophisticated. Although, I have to say that the Recent uh, messages that have come from the Chinese ambassador in Ottawa have been completely unsophisticated and hand-fisted um, and uh, have actually, I think, done more damage to the Chinese cause than anything. So he could just continue on that way and we'll be fine. But uh, certainly, I think we need to be concerned about China and Iran as well. Um, those are three, three countries that will try to, uh, to disrupt and uh, manipulate our, our national dialogue on important issues. So it's important that we remain vigilant and that the government really starts taking this a bit more seriously. Yeah, absolutely. It is extremely concerning. Uh, my thanks to you for coming on. Uh, even two segments wasn't quite enough. Love to have you come back on in the future and pick up this conversation if you're okay with that. Anytime. Thanks, Shane. Okay, there we go. Marcus Kolga, a leading Canadian expert on Russia and Central and Eastern European issues, uh, author of the report we're discussing today, Stemming the Virus, about uh, understanding and responding to the threat of Russian disinformation. Very, very interesting report and well worth your time if you have about an hour or so just to kind of really parse through it. Matter of fact, I'll put some links up on my social media so you can do just that. We'll take a quick break here on the Woodford Show. On the other side, Global BC's Richard Zussman joins us to talk about, oh, that Speaker of the House, Daryl Plekis. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Your opinion, call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Shane Woodford on RadioNL.com. 
Good morning and welcome. It's a beautiful looking day here in Kamloops. Uh, turning our attention to Victoria, a special legislative committee is going to meet today, chaired by the Speaker of the House, Daryl Plekis. He has promised to unveil something uh, to back up these ongoing claims that have grabbed a lot of headlines about uh, wrongdoing at the legislature. Of course, they're going to try and skirt around, apparently, if we see anything today, uh, this official police investigation that has seen the Speaker, uh, sorry, seen the Clerk of the House and the Sergeant at Arms uh, suspended and frog-marched off of the legislative grounds for some kind of investigation of which we know not. Uh, to set the stage for what we might see in that meeting today, pleasure to be joined by Global BC's Richard Zussman. Richard, welcome. Yeah, Shane, my pleasure as always. Thanks for having me. <laughs> okay, man. Uh, so I saw your tweet earlier this morning, and it looks like I held off on the big breakfast for no reason. This isn't the puke one. This is We're not concerned about our stomach contents in this one? Not today. So as everyone will remember, uh, in December, Daryl Plecka said, when people see the results of an internal audit, they will throw up in outrage. Uh, we're not seeing the internal audit today. Uh, this is going to be something different. We don't even know if the internal audit has been ordered yet. If it has, when we expect uh, that back? And that's an internal audit into the finances at the Sergeant Arms office, the clerk's office, but also the Speaker's own office. What we are going to find out today, and you set it up pretty well in the introduction, is we're not really sure, right? Yeah. Like it says, we're going to get these, you know, fresh accusations or allegations, it sounds like. Uh, we don't think they're going to be connected with the ongoing criminal investigation. We have heard multiple times that, you know, the speaker or anyone else can't give out any information that would somehow, you know, hurt the criminal investigation. So we expect them to be separate from that. And then the other thing you alluded to is we now have seen the agenda for the meeting today and they approve the minutes and then they go in camera where they're going to discuss a legal opinion about what Plekis legally can actually say. So we don't know what's going to happen there because it's going to be behind closed doors. The media will be asked to leave at that point. And then we will come back in and we'll find out, if anything, what Plekis can tell us about what went on in the clerk's office, in the sergeant-at-arms office. Everything we've been told uh, has been, you got to be there today. It's going to be big, but we're not exactly sure what sort of long-term impact, you know, anything that comes out of the speaker's mouth today may have. How much of this is going to rely on how the NDP can sort of keep a, hit, a lid on or keep a leash on Daryl Plakas himself. I'm sure if Mike Farnworth had his druthers, it would be a very short meeting and, and, and the Speaker wouldn't say much of anything and we'd all continue on with our day. Yes, but I think uh, it's been proven that uh, the NDP cannot put a lid on Daryl Plakas. And I think the last meeting, or two meetings ago, I guess, when we saw Plakas you know, open the door on this and promise the internal audit and all of those things. You should have just seen House Leader Mike Farnworth just, you know, fuming, <laughs> sitting right <laughs> beside him, uh, trying to get him to keep his mouth shut. Blackett believes strongly in public accountability. And there's been so much mystery around this and a lot of criticism directed towards Plekis himself that I really believe he wants to correct the record. He wants to get information out to the public. You know, a lot of it is going to be he said, she said at this point. We may see some sort of documentation today. Again, I don't think it's going to be directly related to the police investigation. But if Plekis has his way, we're going to get something that is worth discussing. But I just don't know how big it's going to be. But you're right. The NDP wants it to be a short meeting. They would love for Plekis to say nothing. Just based on Plekis' track record, though, I don't think that's going to happen. 
How much does this play at this point into sort of the, the court of public opinion? I mean, we have this huge thing, this a police investigation, two prominent men, members of the legislature, frog marched off the grounds, everyone's buzzing trying to figure this thing out. we got a speaker that appears to be going off on a tangent. Uh, I remember his hour-long uh, last Lamsey meeting where he began screaming he's being treated like a cartoon character and he's really going to try and, uh, and you know, redeem himself by tabling something in today's meeting. So if he can't table anything or if he tables something that isn't even remotely juicy or interesting or isn't, you know, has, doesn't have that pizzazz, um, does he suffer sort of in the eye of public opinion at this point? Yeah, for sure. And I think Alan Mullen will come to play again today. He's the special advisor that we've heard so much about. And there are questions about why Mullen was brought into that office and was he brought in to help Plekis with an investigation? And as we've heard from Plekis and Mullen, was there even ever an investigation in the Speaker's office after they said there was? So I expect we'll probably hear something from Alan Mullen at some point today as well. That could, again, if Plekis is muzzled in the meeting, maybe Mullen says something outside the meeting that provides some clarity to the public. I think you've got it exactly right, Shane. Plekis wants the public to believe that he's doing this above board, that he's looking out for them, he's looking out for accountability, for public money, uh, for the way that the legislature is managed. And I just, I don't see a way that Plekis could walk away from today's meeting without unveiling some of that. He truly believes he made this commitment uh, to provide information, and he's going to provide it some way or another. We'll, we'll see. There's lots of roadblocks that seemingly are being thrown up, but I have a feeling that at least some sort of information will come out. Now, what about this $180,000 that he is looking for access for? First, he said, I don't want it. Then he says, I do want it. Is that going to be an issue that's settled in today's meeting or no? Yeah, I think it will be, Shane. I think that's on the agenda as well. You know, the question is, how quickly do things spiral? And these agendas are very vague. So there's no line item that says this is when we discuss the proposition brought forward by the Speaker to uh, increase the funds at his office. This all comes down to the fact that Daryl Plekis is now an independent MLA. As an independent MLA, he's entitled to a certain amount of money, uh, like Vicky Huntington, who was an independent MLA before him, got. He did say before, just like you said, that he didn't want the money. But now with all sorts of criticisms around Alan Mullen and his travel and his uh, hotel expenses, Plekis says, fine, let's just do it then. I'll take all the money I'm owed, and then we can cover this all above board, and there won't have to be any dealings in terms of what money's coming out of the Speaker's office and what money's coming out of my MLA office. So I think we are going to get a resolution to the $180,000, but again... This meeting could go so sideways uh, that we may not even get to it. But the assumption is that today uh, that management committee will address uh, Plekis's ask uh, for the, the money separate from a speaker's budget. So it would be a speaker's budget. And also he would receive some money as an independent MLA. And all of this swirling around uh, as a possible recall campaign uh, potentially mounts against him. Uh, to my knowledge, nothing filed with Elections BC yet. Uh, but all this headline and all this attention I don't think is doing him any favors if one is launched. No, and that's a, a weird one, right? You know, as you know, and the listeners know, you know, recall's been in place here for a while. It's never been successful in British Columbia. But this one has an unprecedented amount of attention. And a recall campaign here could have serious impacts on the future of the government. If the Liberals end up losing, or the Liberals win the by-election in Nanaimo, and Plekis is recalled, and eventually there needs to be um, a by-election in Abbotsford, that's a safe Liberal seat. We could end up, you know, after all this mayhem is done with 
the liberals sitting with a majority government and 44 seats in the legislature. And hypothetically, if all those things happen, I don't expect they will, but in B.C. you never know, they could go to the left-handed governor and say, look, we now have a majority, we should govern. And you wouldn't even have to go to back to an election, and Andrew Wilkinson could be the premier. Like, that's how crazy these sort of things are, and the dominoes still need to fall. But you're right, any attention could help the recall, but it doesn't seem very well organized. It hasn't even been filed yet. I, I've heard around the hallways that Plekis has openly been making jokes about being recalled. He's not worried about it. So I don't expect it. But you're right. Every little thing contributes to the possibility that that recall could gain momentum and people in that riding could stand up and say, we don't want him as our MLA anymore. Uh, last question before I let you go, Richard. What's the what's the sort of buzz in the legislature right now as we head in towards this meeting? I, I'm hearing that the, lots of camera space has been reserved and it's going to be uh, a very packed and interested room and, and what would normally be a sort of an uninteresting meeting in the past, but these ones are gaining a little bit of attention as far as steam. Yeah, we had a meeting last week just to sort out all the logistics so everybody has a spot. You can listen to it online if you're at home on the Hansard uh, website, so anyone who's curious in the meeting you can listen to it. Global's trying to figure out a way that we potentially could broadcast it. It's just with the in-camera, out-of-camera stuff, it becomes harder, but, you know, check out our Facebook page and our website later. We, we're going to try to broadcast it because we know there's significant public attention. And then in the room, you know, we're hearing reporters from Vancouver coming over for this, not just the regular press gallery, and clearly there'll be a lot of interest. So, you know, it's one of those things, everybody loves a mystery, right, Shane? It's like watching an HBO <laughs> drama unfold before your eyes. So, um, I guess Netflix drama, you're supposed to say now. Yeah. <laughs> and with plenty of potential to go off the rails. It'll be interesting. Richard, thanks, man. Good to talk to you, and uh, we'll see how this thing unfolds. There we go. There's Richard Zussman from Global BC. Uh, it should be a bit of a firecracker meeting if any of the past meetings uh, between Daryl Plakis and the other members of LAMC are any indication. We'll take a quick break. On the other side, I had a sit-down with uh, Dave Eby uh, for the Inside Politics on Friday. Uh, we only heard part of that interview on the Friday show. We'll hear the rest of it here on the Woodford Show. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. You're listening to Shane Woodford on Radio NL 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. On Friday in my uh, Inside Politics show, I had a chance to have a fairly extended chat with Dave Eby. It was actually pre-recorded before the show began. Uh, we only got to squeeze in about 10 minutes of it. Uh, it was a much longer interview, but I wanted to, you to have a chance to hear the second half of it because it focuses a lot more on the money, uh, money laundering controversy, which is swirling around the province, and there's some really interesting stuff in here. So here's uh, the rest of my conversation with Attorney General David Eby, uh, focusing largely on money laundering. So far, we've learned more about the scope of this problem, now estimated to reach into the billions of dollars a year here in this province, something apparently known to the Mounties and to the federal government, but not so much to the province itself. Uh, police don't seem to have the manpower or the funds to properly tackle the problem. Prosecutors appear outgunned, apparently don't even have the resources to vet huge amounts of digital evidence. Uh, all this must add up to a pretty big concern, as well as a lingering question, what do we do? Yeah, we, uh, this, this, it's, it's fascinating, uh, Shane, you know, you pull on one thread, which was these, uh, these individuals bringing these duffel bags full of cash into BC casinos in the, in the lower mainland, and it has uh, led to an entire uh, network of uh, allegations around, uh, yes, billions of dollars in uh, real estate, uh, in annual transactions taking place at just one uh, facility that has uh, ties to, uh, alleged ties to cartels in Mexico, to Middle Eastern crime. It's just astounding. 
to me, what is coming out of the RCMP and the federal government and international observers like the DEA, uh, the Drug Enforcement Agency in the United States. Um, and so uh, one of the things that we've been doing is pushing really hard. I've now uh, presented multiple times to my colleagues at the, in other provinces and to the federal government, to an all-party finance committee in Ottawa, saying we need the federal government on board. Uh, we finally have a minister assigned to work with BC, Bill Blair, uh, who is uh, meeting with us next week. Uh, and uh, we'll be having a conversation with him about the need for the province to have better information from the feds about what's happening uh, so that we can use civil forfeiture, so that we can uh, engage in prosecutions, so we can do tax investigations if the feds aren't going to do them. And uh, we'll do everything we can at the provincial level, and we have, uh, in terms of the casinos and uh, Dr. German's working on real estate as a second phase. We really need the feds at the table uh, on this in order to deal with it effectively. Okay. Uh, can you give me an update on, on where we are with the Phase 2 German report? Last time you and I chatted, it was probably a month or so ago now, uh, it was going through terms of reference and that sort of thing. Is this thing now off the runway and, and headed, headed out into doing something, or where are we at? Yeah, Dr. German's team is working hard. Um, I expect that we'll see his reporting out uh, come in phases. So uh, there were a number of different questions asked, everything from can you look into horse racing to... Uh, luxury cars, which apparently you can buy for cash uh, and sell overseas as part of a money laundering scheme. So he's looking into that. He's looking into real estate. Uh, so expect to see phased reports from him as they start to come in. I expect horse racing will be the first one that the public uh, and I will be seeing from Dr. German just in terms of his preliminary report back to me. Uh, and uh, his entire uh, report is due to us by the end of March. Okay. Um, still with the money laundering file, uh, we learned in recent weeks, thanks to the more great work by Sam Cooper, that the e-pirate prosecution, which fell apart, and I know you were disappointed by, uh, did so because prosecutors mistakenly exposed the identity of a police informant. For your reaction? Yeah, I can't talk about that specific case or confirm whether or not that's why the prosecution went, went awry, but what I can say is that it's pretty obvious to me uh, that uh, there is insufficient capacity, it's pretty obvious to British Columbians as well, it's insufficient capacity to investigate, prosecute, and convict on uh, money laundering and serious organized crime in our province. It's one of two prosecutions, actually, at the federal level that collapsed uh, during the Christmas break and just shortly after. A uh, giant uh, federal drug prosecution also collapsed. Uh, and uh, these are really worrying signs because I know that there are a significant number of investigations that were either never initiated or never brought to prosecution um, because uh, literally uh, hundreds and hundreds of reports were filled out at BC casinos about people bringing in bags of cash. And uh, as far as I know, nobody uh, followed up on that. And if that was happening in casinos, where else was that happening in terms of organized crime? Uh, increasingly, uh, Vancouver and uh, British Columbia has uh, gathered an international reputation about being a hub of money laundering and organized crime. We need to fix that. Um, and so uh, it's, uh, it's a big issue, and, and part of it is the prosecutors, and part of it is the uh, RCMP resources to be able to go after this at the federal level because it has so many international connections. Uh, the other thing that I find really concerning, and Sam Cooper has also reported on this, is the possibility of some casino staff here in B.C. are under investigation for possible connections to money laundering suspects. I'd love your reaction on that, as well as, as to ask you, you know, considering the mammoth amounts of money uh, that is being thrown around here from the criminal underworld, international crime organizations, etc., do you have concerns that people are literally being buy, uh, paid off or, or bought either now or in the past? So everyone that works in gaming in British Columbia uh, is subject to review by the Gaming Policy Enforcement Branch. I read uh, Mr. Cooper's story about this, and it's important uh, to note that although I can't talk about any individual cases, 
that it was Ontario's regulator who was coming to the gaming policy enforcement branch asking for information that they had about gaming workers and uh, and gathering information from our regulators. So if our regulator has the information, people are going to lose their gaming license that if they are engaging in conduct that's inappropriate. Um, and uh, and that does happen in British Columbia, whether it's cheating at play or whether it's facilitating improper transactions, whatever the issue is, people will lose their license to be in the gaming industry in BC. Uh, one of the issues uh, that we faced in the past was that uh, despite the regulator raising the alarm around money laundering and concerns about what was happening in the casino based on actual reports coming from casino staff, uh, the government failed to take the necessary action of saying we won't accept this cash anymore. Well, we've taken that action of stopping the cash uh, from coming into the casinos, uh, the unsourced cash over $10,000, and uh, we'll take the other actions necessary. As soon as there's any indication that someone has a connection to organized crime, they will be removed from the gaming industry. And it's also, frankly, why it's taking a while to do the cannabis licenses, is because we're doing very in-depth background checks of people to make sure they don't have connections to organized crime in the cannabis sector as well. All right. Uh, let's back clean up here in a couple of uh, spare issues. Ron Nairn, president of the Trial Lawyers Association of BC, with a, a bit of a ridiculous attack on you, frankly, but I'll quote EB's approach here, and he's talking about uh, your approach to limiting uh, the, the legal uh, fees and obligations uh, for ICBC as you overhaul it, but is smacks of Donald Trump-like two-faced hypocrisy. How can the Attorney General blame lawyers for increased labor costs when under his watch ICBC is adopting a strategy of unreasonable low-ball sediment settlement proposals that fall short of what the law demands for injured victims. Your reaction? Uh, so we've seen uh, double-digit increases in settlements and awards for plaintiffs uh, for the last two years, uh, and a 260% increase in the awards for plaintiffs with minor injuries over the last 10 years. So I'm not quite sure uh, what Mr. Nairn is talking about in terms of low-ball offers or people being shorted in terms of what their entitlements are. But I do understand uh, why he's concerned. He's the president of the trial lawyers. Uh, we have a lot of uh, plaintiff-side lawyers in this province that do ICBC work. And I don't blame the lawyers. The lawyers are working within the system that we have, and the system is broken. So what we're doing is we're introducing some proportionality. If you have a more minor injury, you'll be going to the Civil Resolution Tribunal. You will not go to BC Supreme Court with all the expenses that that brings. Uh, you will not be allowed to access unlimited pain and suffering awards for a more minor injury. These are reasonable measures to get costs under control, and those two measures alone, Shane, will save a billion dollars for ICBC projected and um, will enable us to increase benefits for lost wages, for housekeeping, for counseling, physiotherapy that haven't been increased since the 90s. So these are long, long overdue changes for the last province in Canada to make these changes. And, uh, and although I understand the concerns of Mr. Uh, Nairn, I'm, I'm not uh, sure that it quite qualifies as two-faced Donald Trump hypocrisy, but, uh, but he's entitled to his opinion. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, ending with this, on the liquor front, you're being lobbied to ease restrictions and allow more competition within the liquor industry. Uh, sound idea, and could it, if we do indeed forge ahead, uh, could it see a price drop at the local eatery or watering hole? Well, uh, about... Uh, Six to eight months ago, uh, we had uh, Mark Hicken, uh, who's a lawyer that specialized in liquor policy, do a review of uh, our system and, and have conversations with industry about what needs to be fixed. Uh, he produced a report with a bunch of recommendations that are forming the backbone of reforms to liquor policy in the province. Uh, so we are looking at improvements around uh, how hospitality, hospitality uh, restaurants and bars interacts with uh, government uh, liquor agencies. And that review and his recommendations apparently attracted the uh, attention of the federal uh, competition commissioner uh, who commended us for doing this work and, uh, and encouraged us in a certain direction. We'll certainly take those comments 
into consideration, and I believe very firmly that we can do a better job for hospitality, and uh, we're working on that right now. There we go. That's Attorney General David Eby. The rest of his interview, a uh, chance to air that uh, that you didn't get to hear on Friday's Inside Politics. And that's it for today's edition of The Woodford Show. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you again right here on Radio NL tomorrow. From CHNL in Kamloops, a Stingray radio station. This is Radio NL 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Local news now.